I'd like to welcome everyone to the Florence Weinberg Show. Frank McKay here. So much more importantly, the author of 16 books, the subject of a documentary, the subject of a long, extensive uh, radio series, and now, of course, the host of her own radio show slash podcast, uh, Dr. Florence Byham Weinberg. Uh, Doc, how are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. I hope you are too. I, I am, and uh, you know, one of the one of the things we were just talking a little bit uh, uh, off mic is uh, about Holocaust uh, Remembrance Day, and uh, I think who better to ask about that than someone who was married to a Holocaust survivor, and uh, and and it's so important that we keep this alive, the uh, the thought and the memory of of one of the most horrific. Event, if if not the the most horrific event in uh, in in uh, recent history, I can't think of anything that even comes close to it. That's right. Uh, I don't think anything has, because it killed six million people, and they were killed not accidentally or by an act of nature, but by an act of man, uh, and it. It is being forgotten or trivialized, one of the two, or commercialized, uh, and we we need to remember it in its proper context. Yeah, well, listen, uh, amen, uh, very, very, very important. And by the way, these people were killed, uh, exterminated, uh, as the, the word was used, um, like vermin, uh, like uh, not like human beings, but like uh, like subhumans. Uh, and and by uh, by evil by evil uh, men and women that allowed this to go, and uh, so many people knew it was happening, and uh, maybe they didn't know what to what extent, but uh, I I don't believe that um, I don't believe that it was uh, completely secret. How could it be? Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's what my husband always said too. How could they not know? Because if if they lived anywhere close. To an extermination camp, they could smell the the odor of burning flesh, and they knew there weren't that many animals around because it was wartime, and and meat was at a premium on the markets. Uh, so how could all of this meat be incinerated in their vicinity if it wasn't uh, an extermination program going on? Uh, so, I mean, there were many, many clues. The trains coming in loaded with people. Uh, if they had to stop on a siding, then the people had seen uh, the men, women, and children uh, stuffed into cattle cars. Uh, and uh, your point is quite well taken that they were treated like garbage. It seems to me that every time human beings decide that another group of human beings uh, is undesirable. They treat them like garbage, which is how uh, the slaves were actually treated. They were treated a slight bit better because they were worth some money, and money always uh, is always the uh, the focus, it seems, of humanity, uh, and it is the reason why we are destroying the planet. Uh, Exxon, for instance, not uh, not. Uh, publicizing what they knew about their own activities destroying the planet uh, since uh, 1973 they knew it um, but they needed they thought they needed the money they wanted the money money always uh, always uh, trumps everything else Amazing. so 
Uh, but the Jews, they took from the Jews when they captured them. They took everything they had. If they had anything in the bank, they got that. If they had any property that was worth anything, they got that. They even got their gold teeth. So uh, anything worth worth anything, they got. Um, so it was money. Uh, money was involved in that too. Uh, but that's not uh, not actually what I want to talk about. What I want to talk about is the life of one individual, namely my husband, who escaped with his life, obviously, uh, since I married him. Um, he died in 1996 at the age of 83 of Parkinson's disease. And uh, so uh, he would be... He would be what? A hundred. Yeah, he was hundred fourteen. Yeah, hundred fourteen. Yes. Yeah, right now, uh, if he had survived, um, and he probably would not have, because he had undergone a lot of hardships in his life. And I will start in the beginning. And um, and Frank, I want you to stop me anytime you have a question or if anything is not clear, or if you just want to contribute something, uh, I would appreciate that too. So um, what I'm going to do is give you a chronological account of his life. Um, he was, <clears throat> excuse me, he was of a moderately wealthy family. They um, considered themselves German. They were fully uh, assimilated into the German society, uh, they hadn't converted to Christianity, but they were not practicing Jews, except that they did honor the high holidays. So uh, Kurt knew a little bit about his Jewish heritage, uh, but it was the cook. So then, of course, they could afford a cook. Uh, it was the cook who, who took him to Mass. And so he found out more about Catholicism than about anything else in the way of religion. So uh, he never interfered with my uh, wanting to go to church um, because he knew all about it. He knew all about Christianity. Uh, he was a theist, but I don't think he had any, um, any religious affiliation. So he was not Jewish, he was not Christian, he was not Muslim or anything else, Buddhist. Uh, but uh, he did believe in, uh, in a prime mover who started and created this whole thing that we call the universe. He, as a child, he was an extremely precocious child. He was the only child. And he had two governesses in succession. When he was a smaller boy, uh, there was a French governess who taught him, of course, French. And he knew French better by far than he ever knew English because the French governess uh, played with him and uh, treated him very kindly. And she she loved him, I think, as, as a... Uh, child of her own. And the second governess, however, was an uh, English woman who was a very stiff and standoffish individual. Uh, and, and he spoke English to the end of his life with a British accent. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but his uh, he would say things um, like, 
uh, it was far, far and away. <laughs> it was far and away from the point. And he would he would uh, make make uh, an idiom up every so often, and he would repeat it. Uh, so he never became quite a native speaker in English. Uh, but French, his French was a native quality. Uh, and, um, of course, he excelled in school, but uh, during his, uh, his early, well, he was almost finished high school, I think, and he belonged to one of the clubs, and there were three, at least, clubs. There was the Nazi, there was the Kami, the Communist, and there was the Socialist. And Court belonged to the Socialist. Uh, group and um, when Hitler came to power in 1933, uh, Kurt was about to be arrested and hauled off to a work camp wow. where the the communists and the socialist kids uh, were being used as cheap labor, and instead of allowing himself to be sucked into that, he fled. Uh, he was born in Hanover, Germany, by the way, uh, and and his German was always spectacularly beautiful because Hanover is uh, reputed to be the uh, the city where the best German, the highest of high German, is spoken. So anyway, he um, uh, he fled, and where did he go? He went to Paris, of course, yeah. because uh, he. Uh, he almost felt as though his real mother was that French governess that he had had, and she was a Parisian. I don't think uh, she was there. Uh, she was probably hired out as someone else's governess uh, when he got there. But he set up, uh, he set himself up as a translator <clears throat> and a teacher of <clears throat> of German and English <laughs> to anyone. Uh, who wanted to know foreign language. He knew those two. <clears throat> he certainly knew all the grammar, uh, which uh, is is badly lacking for your, for American students these days. They don't learn grammar, and they don't le learn how to write cursive. Uh, but uh, anyway, so he, he had a little business as a translator, an editor, and a teacher of, uh, of language. And he became a reporter for the uh, German-language newspaper, which was called Die Zukunft, which means the future. <clears throat> and it was run by a uh, German-Jewish uh, man by the name of Arthur Köstler. And Arthur Köstler may be familiar to some of my listeners uh, because he uh, was important in other ways, uh, especially for the refugees. Um, and uh, uh, along the way, I think through, probably through the connections with the newspaper, uh, he heard about and discovered uh, that there was an opening uh, to teach French to the Portuguese and uh, possibly German, but I think the main language they were interested in was French. He applied for that job and got it. And so he went to Portugal in 1936 uh, after he'd been in Paris for three years. 
And um, uh, he had a wonderful time there. The, the Portuguese were very welcoming, and they, they even welcomed him into their homes. And uh, uh, at the same time that he was enjoying life down there and uh, being very useful to them, uh, he noticed that there were German ships coming into the harbor. He was in Porto in Portugal. And Porto, it means port. <laughs> and in his time, it was known as Oporto, which is simply the port. Yeah. Uh, um, but in any case, these ships were coming in, and they were unloading, as he put it, heavy luggage. And he reported this by mail to Arthur Kostler's Die Zukunft um, uh, newspaper. Uh, and the heavy luggage consisted of uh, personnel carriers and tanks and artillery pieces and things of that sort. And he speculated in his mail that uh, they were being shipped across the border into Spain. And he speculated that there was going to be a civil war in Spain. Well, about three o'clock one morning, uh, his his door, his uh, apartment door was broken into, and uh, the secret police grabbed him and uh, handcuffed him, his hands behind his back. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and uh, he was hauled off to, to a jail, where he was interrogated. And, of course, he, uh, he divulged almost nothing. But they put him in a cell along with another prisoner who was oh so very friendly and so uh, full of questions about his background and what he was doing in Portugal and on and on. And Court would simply nod and smile <laughs> and smile and not divulge any kind of information whatsoever. Wow. So he was hauled back into interrogation. Uh, by the way, um, uh, Salazar was the uh, dictator of Portugal at the time. And, and obviously, Salazar was in league with Hitler because he was allowing those ships to dis disembark their, uh, their, their heavy luggage in his port. And so he was helping the Nazi effort <laughs> to help his friend Franco, who then became dictator of Spain, to come into power. And so all of Europe almost would be under the aegis of, uh, of dictators very shortly. But Salazar was already in, in position. So in the second interrogation, he Court was my, my husband's name, by the way. I don't think I've even spoken his oh, name you yet. You, you mentioned it in the very beginning. Okay. All right. So Court, Court Weinberg was told that he would be the victim of an unfortunate automobile accident across the border in Spain. And so he was put back in the cell uh, alone this time, no friendly companion. But uh, meanwhile, the Front Populaire came into power in France, and the Front Populaire was a communist government, or certainly very less left-leaning government. Oh, so, 
So it was, it was the, uh, the antithesis of what else was going on around. And a diplomat had been sent to Portugal uh, who had disembarked at Porto and had hired a taxi. And they, when he got to his hotel, the taxi driver demanded an exorbitant fee. And the diplomat refused to pay it, knew uh, that he was being robbed, and so he refused to pay the taxi driver, who then complained to the police, and he ended up in the same jail where a court was. And he called the uh, he called back back to Paris. He called the government and told them what was happening. The government got up in arms and informed Salazar that if he didn't release everybody that had everybody in prison in Portugal who had anything to do with France uh, was to be released immediately, and that included people who held what would be equivalent at the time to the green card that we Americans give to foreigners who have, are staying in the country. So Kurt was released along with the diplomat, and he immediately embarked. In fact, he was expelled. He was told that to leave the country and not to come back wow. under pain of execution instant execution if he did come back. So, uh, and of course, this, the charges were that he was spying for the uh, for the French government. Wow. And when he actually was simply reporting what he saw to, the, to a newspaper. <laughs> but, this is amazing, by the way, Doc. This is, uh, not to interrupt you, please keep going. But this is amazing. I, I've heard you talk about Kirk uh, pr prior to this, but uh, I never knew this part of it. This is just unbelievable. Yes. And a footnote here, about two months ago, I got a call from Portugal. And um, we constantly, after that, since the, the call was difficult because the, uh, the lady who was doing the research spoke uh, English, but not adequate English for me to tell her all about it. Uh, but in any case, we corresponded uh, by email, and she, at the end of it, sent me the certificate, the police record. I, I now have the document. It's a copy of the document, but it is a perfect copy in, in sepia tones because, of course, old paper turns uh, beige <laughs> with time. And all the information about Kurt is absolutely accurate, as he told me, uh, dates and all. Uh, so I have a document to, uh, to prove this story to be ver correct verbatim. Uh, anyway, he went back to Paris, and he uh, stayed there then. It was 1937. Uh, it was February 1937 when he was uh, expelled, and he remained in Paris then until the war with Germany broke out. The Germans, of course, uh, invaded uh, France. And the uh, court went down since he had been accepted uh, by the French as a Frenchman, because he, uh, his mannerisms and his speech and everything were perfectly French, perfectly native. Um, so he went down uh, to uh, enlist in the army, and it didn't occur to him uh, that he would not be allowed to fight in the French army. Instead, they placed him in the French Foreign Legion. 
Wow. So he was shipped to Africa. And the uh, headquarters was in Sidi Belabes in Algeria. And, uh, and so there he was uh, with all the criminal refugees from <clears throat> from fascist Italy and Nazi Germany who were all uh, anti-Semitic. And so life for Kurt Weinberg, the Jew, uh, was not particularly comfortable. Uh, but I think he had a few other Jewish friends, other Jews who had landed in the Foreign Legion for more or less the same reasons Kurt had done. Uh, so he managed to survive um, until the uh, Foreign Legion sent a contingent of men to confront the Nazi army as it came south through France. Uh, a huge motorized uh, invasion force coming uh, in power down uh, down through uh, the main highways in France and the, and the foreign legionnaires were to stop them with a rifle, the fusil belle, which had been invented in uh, or, or created in uh, 1898 and or 1897 and revised in in 1899, with one round of ammunition, if you please. Wow. And they were to stop the Wehrmacht with their tanks and so forth as they came uh, <coughs> roaring down the highways. Uh, and what happened, the, the, uh, uh, the legionnaires were simply taken captive and stashed in a concentration camp. And the concentration camp uh, was uh, was very rough and typical for concentration camps. The men were not fed, and so they climbed the palm trees. Uh, and of course, this was southern France. They climbed the palm trees and threw down the green uh, dates and ate the green dates. And they, if any cat or dog happened to wander through, they ate the cat or the dog as well. And so they were starving. Uh, when the, ca uh, the camp commander called them all together and announced that if they could produce 100 American dollars in the next month and a half, I forget how many, six, six weeks probably, uh, he would open the gate a crack and turn his back. Um, and then... Uh, they would be able to do whatever they could on the on the outside. And Kurt, during his stay in Paris, <clears throat> since he had no extra money, he had been sneaking into the Sorbonne to listen to to audit. <laughs> we call it auditing, um, but he was illegally listening to courses uh, 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 that interested him. And he met an American Quaker. <clears throat> whose name was Gordon Marsh. And Gordon Marsh was studying Sanskrit. He was a linguist. And they had got become friends, and they had exchanged telephone numbers and addresses. And uh, so when Kurt was told that if he could get 100 American dollars, he would be freed, he wrote to Gordon Marsh asking, if he could uh, rake up $100 and send it to him. And, of course, the idea of sending $100 through the mail in itself was a pipe dream because any 
any money uh, in an envelope would be stolen before it got to its destination. And, of course, the time went on. Four weeks passed with nothing. And in the fifth week, when court was already despairing, here came a letter from Gordon Marsh with $100. And the only way I think such a letter could have made it across the Atlantic to Kurt Weinberg's hands was if the Quakers passed it from one to another. <laughs> Otherwise, it would never have made it. Or maybe hit but, it, you know, like wrapped it in, in the paper where it just looked like a regular letter with no money, and uh, well, they disguised it somehow. Uh, yeah, possibly, but I think they would they would uh, hold it up to the light. They would uh, they would steam it open. They would inspect the contents. I just don't think it could have made it. Very lucky, very lucky had it got through. And this is this is one of his escapes by the skin of his teeth. I forgot to say uh, the, the important thing was that after six weeks, the camp was to be turned over to the Gestapo which meant that any Jew in the group would be sent instantly to Buchenwald or Bergen-Belsen or Auschwitz, and in other words, exterminated. So he escaped with the skin of his teeth being exterminated after the concentration camp. And um, so the camp commander was as good as his word. He turned his back and opened the gate a crack, and Kurt slipped through and made his way to Toulouse, which wasn't all that far away, I think. There, the French, the Free French, uh, who were organized during World War II and happened to be women, mostly. Uh, so the women of the Free French hid him in the Cité Universitaire, which means in the dorms of the Toulouse University, or the uh, the University of France at Toulouse. And um, and there he wrote a little memoir booklet, a little diary sort of, which I have given to the Holocaust Museum. Uh, and so uh, they have one little memento handwritten by Court, a little notebook. Anyhow, so... Uh, the first uh, attempt to get him to the United States was a ship, a regular uh, freighter of some sort, um, and it got as far as the Strait of Gibraltar, where it was intercepted by a U-boat, and the U-boat escorted it to Casablanca, and docked right next to it. And as all of the refugees, who were all Jew Jewish refugees, about 25 of them <laughs> on this uh, freighter, as they were peeking over the, the, uh, the rail, uh, watching, they saw the U-boat uh, captain uh, get out in his full uniform with his jack boots and his medals and epaulets and so on, and, and his hat, typical Nazi hat. Um, very, very uh, uh, cutting, a very impressive figure, and, and the, uh, the the freighter had let down the uh, the gangplank, the gangway, so uh, he could come up. Of course, well, he didn't. He simply marched back and forth in 
below it, in front of it. And he stopped and he called up to the first officers who were standing at the head of the gangway and said, uh, I'm going to smoke this cigarette. And he pulled out a uh, lucky strike or the Nazi equivalent and lit it with his lighter and blew a puff of smoke and said, while I smoke this cigarette, I'll be watching that ship offload over there, or offlaid, I think is the right terminology. And when, it's, when I've finished the cigarette, I'll throw the butt into the water, and then I'm coming on board. And if there are any unauthorized personnel on board, I will take them into custody. And so... He was as good as his word. He turned his back and smoked his cigarette as slowly as possible. And the 25 little refugees came tumbling down the gangplank and disappeared into the slums of Casablanca. Can I ask you, uh, what, what was the motivation for him doing this? Uh, was he being paid to do this? He was bribed? No, no. He was not a Nazi. And he did not believe in the extermination of human beings. Oh, oh wow. Wow. There were. Wow. Kurt, uh, it's unbelievable. But, boy, he, uh, he, he had God watching him over him on a couple of occasions. <laughs> he certainly did. So, again, by the skin of his teeth, he escaped being captured and exterminated. Um, he managed to find his way back to Toulouse, and he never told me how he got back, but he did. And uh, probably just hitch hitchhiking uh, with fishing boats and things like that until he managed to get back to France. And uh, the free French women, again, uh, hid him until they found another boat to get him to New York. And it was a banana boat, a small boat, and so insignificant that it was not intercepted by any of the German U-boats, and it got close to the uh, to New York Harbor. And uh, Kurt then got permission to call Gordon Marsh, uh, ship to shore, and when the ship docked, there were uh, a little delegation of black-clad Quakers waiting in line uh, to greet Kurt. And when he got off the ship, they handed him a casket, uh, a small cigar box-sized little casket, uh, and said, we're very, very sorry to break this news to you, but these are your mother's ashes. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then they said, uh, and they actually, they had some jewelry of hers, which he immediately recognized, some pearls and earrings, and uh, a wedding ring and her engagement ring. And um, anyway, so he received these things, and then they said, uh, and we have a job for you teaching French and German at George School in Pennsylvania. And so off he went to Pennsylvania, and I have visited George School, so I know that uh, it's there, <laughs> and that's the name of the school. Uh, anyway, uh, he was doing well there because he did know English, uh, plenty of English, and he naturally knew German and French very well. <laughs> so um, the, uh, the United States then was uh, passively allowing uh, Jewish people all over the world, except from our own country, uh, to be uh, 
uh, gathered, uh, assembled, and uh, taken off to be exterminated. We did nothing about that. And uh, then the war broke out, and Kurt, uh, who was employed by an American outfit, received a draft notice. So down to the draft office he went, and he was examined and found to be borderline 4F. Oh. And he had been starving, to, uh, and he had not quite recovered uh, his, uh, his normal weight or uh, perhaps some other, he had some other slight health issues. Uh, so they said to him, okay, you're just almost 4F, not quite. So we give you your choice. You can either stay in the country, in the United States, or you can go to war. You can uh, enlist if you want to. And Kurt said, I will enlist. I must fight Hitler. And so he did. He became a soldier in the U.S. Army. And he be, he uh, went to work since he knew all those languages. Uh, he knew Portuguese and Spanish and Italian and French, obviously, and German, and uh, probably a few other. Uh, and English. <laughs> and English, of course, yes. Uh, and so he was put into GI. GI was uh, Army Intelligence. Uh, and he even gave lectures at, at uh, Camp Ritchie. Um, on how to uh, uh, how how to teach a foreign language to, <laughs> uh, or not how to teach a foreign language, but how to understand a uh, prisoner who's telling you spilling his guts in a foreign language, um, and so on. I mean, how how to interrogate somebody, uh, and the the key to a successful interrogation was to be friendly, uh, and to uh, to speak about. Uh, familiar things to, uh, say, a fellow German, uh, and instead of trying to torture it out of him or waterboard it or whatever, uh, if you could gain the person's confidence, then you likely uh, would gain information as well. So he, as I say, he lectured at Camp Ritchie, and then he was sh sent uh, abroad, and he uh, uh, he uh, he heard the blood and guts speech. By the way, uh, General Patton's blood and guts speech was which was delivered on his happened to be on his ship, and then he uh, he fought through uh, Sicily, which was apparently a snap. It was an easy victory for the Allies, uh, and then landed in Naples, where he was greeted by the Italians shouting, Americani, liberatori, and they were being embraced, and um, uh, uh, and the, the women were um, offering themselves, <laughs> and so forth, and so the Italians uh, were very happy to see the Americans, because so many had already uh, um, had already immigrated, and they took courts uh, with his uh, his dark brown hair and brown eyes. Uh, and they took him to be an Italian boy and tall, <laughs> so, right? Very, he was very tall. <laughs> was he very tall? So, pardon me. Wasn't he very tall? Was he a tall man? Kurt? He was. He was short of. I was six feet, and he was. He was five ten at oh, the time. Oh, okay, I got you. Okay. Yeah, he your was, dad was tall. Your dad was tall. He, for for European, he was tall. Right. Yes. 
<laughs> anyway, so uh, he went through Italy. Actually, he, he was on the front most of the time because he was interrogating prisoners of war. Uh, if I have time, I will quickly tell you a, uh, an anecdote. Um, and uh, a whole battalion of German forces had, uh, had surrendered. And they had gathered at the uh, on the uh, at the uh, tarmac on the air. There was a uh, an air, airport, an army airport at Gedi, and uh, so they were bivouacked there on the uh, tarmac. And uh, and the Allies, the American uh, command, knew that there were Gestapo agents uh, who had disguised themselves as German soldiers. They had. Uh, donned German uniforms and uh, were trying to uh, slip through and not be captured because uh, we Americans were isolating the uh, Gestapo and prosecuting them for war crimes. And Kurt and his little group, Kurt was was the brains of the outfit and in command, uh, and uh, so he was charged with finding the Gestapo in that battalion of of, uh, of German soldiers, so he uh, he and the group decided that they would be the work detail, the Arbeitsamt, and so they set up different platforms and got up and announced that they were the work detail, and they noticed that the uniforms were looking pretty tatty and they were torn and. Uh, uh, so they had cloth that would match the German uniform color, and they had uh, machines, uh, sewing machines, and thread, and all they needed were tailors. Were there any tailors out there? And so the several German sh soldiers in each group raised their hands and said, "Yes, uh, we know how to, we know how to sew." <laughs> so, uh, so okay, they. Uh, gave them the the uh, cloth, the thread, and the machines. And then the next day they said, well, we noticed that your boots were badly in need of repair. Uh, do we have any... Uh, any um, shoemakers. Shoemakers, yeah. And yes, there were shoemakers, and so on. And it went on, cooks and so forth. You know, you need your native food. And uh, we, we even have people here who can uh, cook German cooking. And, uh, so they were making these guys very comfortable. And, and finally, they asked, well, now it's about time we get you organized. Uh, and we need uh, somebody who knows how to take photographs and fingerprints. So is there anybody out there who knows how to take photographs and fingerprints? And there was no, nobody, all of a sudden, nobody. And then finally, in one, uh, one unit, one man raised his hand and said, uh, yeah, yeah, Schultz here. Um, oh, Private Schultz, uh, how did you learn how to do uh, fingerprinting and photographs? Ah, in the Geheimen Staatspolizei, says he. What is that? Pardon me? Where, where did he learn? In the, he, he said it in German, the right. Geheimen Staatspolizei. And oh, the so, secret, the police, yeah, so the secret German police. secret police, which ah. is what Gestapo uh, is an abbreviation of. Wow. 
So, so then, uh, cool is I don't know whether Kurt was the one who who uh, raised this guy uh, or not, or who uh, roused him. Uh, anyway, he said, "Oh, um, that's really great. Uh, do you know anybody else who's been so well trained?" <laughs> yeah. and, Ah, uh, uh, it's uh, Oppenheimer and uh, and so on. He, he named a whole bunch of them, uh, and uh, so in in fifteen minutes they had them all together. So that is an example of how to interrogate prisoners of war. You do not waterboard. <laughs> you gain their confidence, and then uh, you can somehow. Yeah, and then somehow uh, you, you will trick them by superior craft. <laughs> you will trick trick them into betraying themselves. And uh, Kurt had other stories which I don't have time to tell. Uh, one of them is even better than that one, but it entails uh, it entails uh, some uh, aspects that might be considered indelicate, and so I won't yeah. tell it. Uh, maybe sometime in the future. But in any case, so Kurt, uh, the war was won, and Kurt and a friend named Ralph Friedman were demobilized, who was also in GI. He was at the headquarters, um, uh, not GI, but uh, but anyway, Army Intelligence was at headquarters, and they were receiving the report. And they... They were waiting for the mail to come in because Weinberg's reports were always so witty and uh, and uh, and informative. <laughs> so anyway, so uh, Ralph and Kurt uh, cemented a f friendship when they met, which lasted until Kurt died. And afterwards, uh, Ralph continued to be my good friend as well after that. Uh, so... Uh, Anyway, they got to the United States on a liberty ship, and both of them then separately, they uh, they separated, and Ralph uh, went to a uh, graduate school. He went to Brown University in Rhode Island, and Kurt went to Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, and then both of them, uh, and got, both of them got MAs then. And then they met again at Yale, where both of them were taking a PhD. All of this financed by the GI Bill. So um, a G2 uh, was Army Intelligence, and GI, uh, it, of course, is government issue. And that was the abbreviation given to Army uh, soldiers in the U.S. Army. They were GIs. Because the government had issued everything they owned, practically, uniforms and so forth. Um, but in any case, thanks to the government, which is actually, uh, it was doing something that is would be classified as a socialist uh, deed. Uh, the government supplied the money to educate these men who had survived uh, a world war. Uh, and... Uh, so two of them got Yale PhDs and went on to become very brilliant professors. And I, I of course, met Kurt and was fascinated by him and his intellect, his, his erudition, and his character, and I married him. 
So that is that is my story for today and the story of one Holocaust survivor. I, I, amazing. I, I mean, just I, I mean, just an amazing story. And and, and you're giving us an abbreviated <laughs> version of the Kurt Weinberg uh, story. I, I mean, it's uh, it, it's it just amazing uh, from uh, from start to finish. But I mean, this is this is just, uh, you know, unbelievable. And, you know, and not to get lost in there, what would have happened to him is probably what happened to many of his family members. They were exterminated. Yeah. And uh, this is by by the the most evil people that we know uh, in our in, in our recent history. Uh, and this is an hour. This this happened in your lifetime. This is unbelievable. This yes. isn't like it happened during Genghis Khan or or uh, the Huns <laughs> or the Goths or the Vandals. I mean, this is this is uh, you know less than a hundred years ago. This happened. This is unbelievable. Yes, it's it's within living memory, indeed. Within living uh, memory. And and uh, and the Holocaust uh, Museum in uh, in in Washington D.C. is so important. All of the Holocaust uh, remembrances are so important if uh if we don't remember them shame on us uh this this can't uh, ever happen again we can never allow a hitler to exist again we can never allow a group of people regardless of who they are how different they might be and and again uh, you, you know uh you know it, it if if they don't look like us, like the Jews look like us, of course, and they talk like us, and they they're much like us, Judeo Christians, but even we have to watch. Uh, the evil may may come in, and uh, and and t take on uh, some Muslim nation or some African nation, and somehow or another we we take less interest in that. You know, we're we're all interested in the Ukraine because they look like us and they 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 think like us and so forth. But uh Israel is our uh, to me it's our closest relative uh in the world stage. They're our best ally. I just came from there and it was like being home to be honest with you and what you know, great people and to think that a man like Hitler and his followers uh, in order to take power, um, they were they blamed the ills of World War One and the Versailles Treaty, and everything that happened on this group of people, and uh, and they wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth. By the way, uh, there are there are some you know extremist Muslim groups who may want to do the same thing to uh, to Israel if they had the the opportunity to do that. Um, right. we, we need. We need to remember the Holocaust uh, more than anything, and uh, we we have to make sure our children and my children do understand the significance of it. We we have to we have to hope that the uh, and it'll probably come from the Jewish community, but that the remembrances um, are are strong, powerful, and 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 never ending. Um, because if if we let this slip through, either through uh, negative propaganda or through anti-Semitism or uh, or something. I mean, shame on us as a society. But the next generation, my generation, has to pass down to the next generation and so forth. Yes. This, this has to be included, um, uh, deeply included in all history books. This has to be, uh, you know, uh, remembered properly online 
And I, you know, look, it, it is at this point, it is. But a hundred years from now, it has to be two hundred years from. You know, this is when something like this may occur again, and it might not be the Jews. It may be some someone else. But we have to watch out. We have to watch out for despots. We have to watch yeah. out for. Mm-hmm. And look in our own country about uh, uh, about suppressing the uh, the beliefs and the thoughts of of others, or to uh, uh, to limit. Um, a minority's vote or or whatever uh the idea of of overpowering a weaker foe within our own country is uh, is something that we should remember i'm not comparing anything to the holocaust but what i'm saying is that it could actually happen again yes you're absolutely right and uh, anti-semitism has risen uh i think it's doubled uh in uh, 2021 over 2016, let's say, um, there, I mean, people are walking into synagogues and shooting at yep. worshipers and that sort of thing. That happened in Pittsburgh. Um, and, uh, and other crimes against, uh, against Jews are being perpetrated by people who have no idea. They, they have uh, become Nazis. Um, they have joined a Nazi party of an American group that thinks uh, that, it, that it's heroic, uh, that Hitler was a, an actual hero. Um, and uh, they want to imitate and uh, emulate everything that he did, and that includes destruction of the Jews. Um, and they have resurrected... Uh, all the old um, uh, slanders against the Jews, like uh, the protocols of the elders of Zion and and that sort of thing that uh, aroused the hatred of Europe against the Jews in the 1930s. Uh, So it's very much there, and it is in our own country. And, uh, of course, the arousal of hatred in this country uh, that um, was increased uh, so heavily during uh, the years 2016 to 2020, um, those, uh, uh, that idea that your enemy is uh, to be hated and to be uh, uh, despised and even to be killed because, uh, uh, for instance, uh, one man uh, took a, a a rifle that was loaded with nails, I think uh, I understood, and attacked an FBI building uh, after the FBI was uh, uh, was uh, smeared, uh, was libeled uh, in a, a, a TV news broadcast. Um, and so on. I mean, uh, now it is fashionable to hate your enemies unto death, that you wish they were all dead. Uh, so uh, a similar psychology is being built in this country uh, as, as uh, prevailed in Germany in, in, in 1937, 8, 9, and in there uh, when Hitler had already started uh, uh, gathering Jews and uh, hauling them off uh, to uh, ultimately to be exterminated. He, he uh, started off uh, in Poland and Czechoslovakia just digging huge, uh, digging huge ditches and throwing the corpses in mass graves. But that proved to be too uh, difficult. It was 
uh, psychologically too difficult for his uh, soldiers. Uh, so uh, it was uh, the idea of uh, gassing, gassing them, and that was an anonymous way of killing people, gassing them and then cremating them. That was much more efficient. Um, but the, uh, the hatred unto death of your enemy uh, is very much present in this country. And I'm sure that I even know pe some people here in San Antonio who, uh, who hate. If they knew what my ideas were and my convictions, uh, they might gun me down. I don't know, because they uh, certainly have the right to carry a uh, weapon openly in the streets if they wish. Uh, that's Texas law now. Amazing. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Anybody over eighteen, uh, whether they know anything about guns or not, has the right to carry openly carry a, a weapon, and that even includes an AR-15 or AK-47. So um, we have made a lot of progress already towards uh, towards Nazi Germany. If we uh, uh, if we really want to look at it uh, dispassionately and not paper it over, uh, Pollyanna ideas. Uh, so we must be vigilant. We must know the truth. We must know history, because if we don't know history, we're doomed to repeat it. And that's what we seem to be doing. Wow. Amazing. Um, uh, amazing. Just, I, again, the Holocaust is our subject and has been our subject. Um, we uh, we have to remember this, and Kurt Weinberg has really been our subject, and that's the the uh, well, the late husband and a great man. I mean, just an amazing, brilliant man. Um, I'm blown away every time I hear more about him. Of uh, and and we're talking to the widow each and every week. She is our host each and every week of the Florence Weinberg Show. What a story, uh, Doc. Thank you very much for sharing this. It, it just it, unbelievable. You're Heroic yes, figure. I agree. I agree, and uh, and this was a tribute, really, to uh, to Court uh, on on this day. Uh, this is when I conceived of it, anyway, that I would tell this story on July twenty seventh, which has been designated an international remembrance. January twenty seventh day. Uh, January twenty seventh. Right? Jan I'm sorry, did I yeah, say July? July, yes, January. <laughs> Whoa! Okay. I, I'm, that is, of course, a wishful, right. <laughs> one of these wishful uh, substitutions. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, January 27th. Uh, so that was Friday, and that was when I conceived of this idea of telling his story, because uh, it, it is part of the Holocaust story. Okay. He managed to, to escape it, but I, I didn't mention this. His father was killed in Buchenwald. His father got managed to sell his property uh, for practically nothing, but enough to get his wife a ticket to New York. His mother uh, was on a visitor's visa, which ran out just before the United States went to war. And the, uh, the Immigration Naturalization and Immigration Service informed her that she was to be deported back to her country of origin. And so she tried to get into Canada, which refused her because she was, because they were interning in 
in camps, they were interning all enemy aliens, and that included all the Jews. And uh, that is the, the immigrants from uh, from Germany, the Jewish immigrants from Germany and Canada all uh, went into camps. Uh, so they would not in, uh, allow any other one to come in, and so she was refused. She tried to get into Mexico, and they were they refused her, and I don't know the grounds. But she, she decided to end it all, and she swam out into the Hudson River and drowned, and the Port Authority found her body, uh, and I have that report. My, my God. <clears throat> and so she, she was cremated, and the, uh, the, uh, uh, the Quakers uh, rescued her, her ashes then and, and presented them to Kurt. Amazing. So, Just yeah. Amazing. Well, Doc, thank so, you. so the uh, it was the United States that exterminated his his mother. Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. Wow. Well, listen. Thank uh, you. Uh, thank you for sharing. Uh, just absolutely amazing. Uh, Frank McKay signing off. Uh, you've been listening to Florence Byham Weinberg, Doctor Florence Byham Weinberg, and we'll see you all next time on. The Florence Weinberg Show.